Hello, I'm Terry Young of the History of the Early Church podcast. Across the centuries of the ancient and medieval eras, great warlords have left their mark on the landscape of history. Though names like Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan are often more familiar to us, a great many other famous generals and conquerors had an enormous impact on the pre-modern world. I hope you enjoy this episode of Warlords of History, and when you're finished listening, consider checking out the history of the early church. From Constantine the Great to Julian the Apostate, the history of warlords and the history of the early Christians intersect in fascinating ways. Thank you. November 13, 1002, the feast day of St. Bryce on the Christian calendar. A family of four were just about to complete their morning chores around their farm, which formed part of the rural community surrounding them. In what had once been a frontier town between the Danelaw and the Kingdom of Wessex, placing it near the modern-day city of Oxford, England. Although, by this point in time, it had since melded to become just one of the countless farming communities in Anglo-Saxon England. This plot of land had been in their family for the past two generations, their ancestors having immigrated from Norway sometime in the 920s. The parents, now in their mid-20s, had worked these rich, abundant soils their entire lives. It was hard work but toiling with dedication had enabled them to always have food on the table and increasingly prosper, each generation improving on the achievements of those before them. There was the father, Uthric, who was busy mending the wooden enclosure surrounding a small flock of goats, and his wife, Estrid, who had just emerged from their humble thatch-roofed house, calling out to their children to come in for lunch. Edwin, a boy of eight, and his sister, Eowyn, aged six, who had been given decidedly Anglo-Saxon names. These were children that resonated little with their Scandinavian heritage. Sure, they had heard stories from the village elders about life in Norway, about how difficult it had been to scratch out a living on the farms there. It was just that those stories and that world was so far removed from their current experience and like their parents, living in these lands is all they had ever known. Settling down for a quick lunch consisting of bread and a vegetable stew, their simple meal was soon interrupted by strange cries sounding off in the distance. Uthric got up and rushed outside to determine the cause of the disturbance, only to be met with fear gripping his entire being, paralyzed in horror as he witnessed a soldier from the local militia ruthlessly skewer his unarmed cousin with a sword, whose farm was neighboring theirs. Followed by cries of desperation and the unmistakable sense of fire and smoke billowing in the air. Unable to comprehend what was going on, he was broke out of his paralysis as his eyes met with those of the soldier that had just committed the terrible deed who then called upon four others to hurry up and join him, their weapons and armor rattling as they started swiftly approaching. Fear, giving away to panic, Uthric picked up his daughter and yelled in desperation for his wife and son to get up and run. This was one of the many heartbreaking scenes playing out in numerous villages 
all across England on that day. Notably, concentrated on communities of people with Nordic ancestry that by the end of that day would consist of thousands of murdered victims. A horrific slaughter ordered by King Ethelred, immortalized in infamy as the St. Brice's Day Massacre. Commanded in response to the surge of Viking raids on his coastlines, he had been pushed over the edge by royal counselors whispering in his ear that these people were preparing to rise up against his rule. Approximately 1,000 kilometers away to the east, across the North Sea, outrage over this somber event demanded severe reprisal, and the Danish king, Svein Forkbeard, the undisputed and dominant force in Scandinavia, took it upon himself to be the conveyance of the response. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. Episode 10 and the third part covering the lifetime, motivations, and achievements of the Danish Viking warlord, Svein Forkbeard. Before jumping straightway into this episode, just a quick heads up that you may want to begin with episodes 8 and 9, which more fully lay down the foundation of Forkbeard's early days, rise to power, and struggles to maintain and hold onto that power, which allows us to better understand the mindset and motivations of this prolific Viking king. But here's a short summary of episode 9 to help jog your memory as to where we left things off, before unpacking the beginnings of his exploits in pursuit of the English throne. In episode 9, we covered how Forkbeard, after having defeated his father at the Battle of the Isafjord in 986, to gain the Danish crown, went off in the early 990s raiding in England in the pursuit of riches to finance his future endeavours, wherein the English began paying out huge sums of money called Dangeld to buy off Viking raiders to leave their lands and prevent further destruction. That ultimately had the opposite effect and incentivized enterprising Vikings to come back for these prizes, including Forkbeard. But in doing so, he made a serious miscalculation because he left behind numerous enemies that worked together under the leadership of King Eric the Victorious of Sweden to usurp his Danish kingdom while he was abroad. To make matters worse, his raiding co-leader of 994, Olaf Tryggvason, upon parting ways, then went off and conquered Norway, which at that time was part of the Danish kingdom leaving the prospect of Forkbeard regaining any of his domains now looking bleaker and bleaker. Left in a desperate situation, the winds of fortune soon changed for Forkbeard, offering up two key instances of luck that he jumped on tenaciously, fueling an unbelievable resurgence. First, Eric the Victorious suddenly died in 995, clearing the path for Forkbeard to come back and retake his throne in Denmark, who shortly thereafter, and learning the lesson from his earlier missteps, aggressively began cleaning house internally to shore up his hold on his kingdom. And then, secondly, Olaf Tryggvason fails miserably in his attempt to wed Queen Sigurd of Sweden, Eric the Victorious's widow, allowing Svein Forkbeard to capitalize on this and gain her hand in marriage 
thereby also gaining a valuable alliance with the King of Sweden, establishing the basis of a powerful military coalition that was used to overwhelm Olaf Tryggvason at the Battle of Spolder in September 1000. The spectacular resurgence now completed with Forkbeard firmly holding the reins in Denmark and regaining the title of the King of Norway. When we last left things off, it was late in the year 1000, and with that victory in hand, Forkbeard had just established himself as the preeminent monarch in all of Scandinavia. King of Denmark and Norway, he was also the cornerstone of the powerful alliance, including King Olaf of Sweden and Eric Hackensen of Norway, with no other Viking leaders of substance remaining that could threaten to throw them down from that perch as well as no other external enemies that had the strength to threaten them. Being that the Holy Roman Empire, which had long been a thorn in Denmark's side, were busy dealing with internal struggles and strife under Otto III. As such, for the next couple of years, Forkbeard busied himself with administering his kingdom and ensuring that the Danish holdings in Norway, known then as Viken, were securely under his thumb. In a broader sense, all the preceding years of warring and dispute was actually the catalyst for an overarching peace that had overtaken Scandinavia and its inhabitants. Interestingly, however, this peace did not extend to all Danes and Nordic peoples, nor did it free them from dire threats of violence. To those living abroad in the English region previously known as the Danelaw, they were about to experience violence on an unprecedented scale. While the population estimates for people of Nordic ancestry residing in England in the year of the first millennium can vary wildly, more recent estimates suggest that upwards of 35,000 may have migrated to the Danelaw from about the mid-860s onwards, over a period of almost 100 years. Which may not seem too high according to today's standards, however, this would have been a significant migration for the time. By the year 954, the English had managed to dislodge the last of the Viking rulers from these lands. And while this most certainly slowed the migration, the vast majority of these Scandinavian settlers that had previously journeyed across the North Sea remained there, farming and working the soils to carve out their livelihood. And by all accounts, thriving and growing their families as well. By the year 1000, perhaps up to 50,000 people of Nordic ancestry were living in England at the time, which was quite sizable really, given that the total population counted about 1.25 million souls. Availability and access to good farmland was relatively scarce in the Nordic countries, and these people were looking to carve out a better life for themselves and their families. And from the mid-860s, for the better part of roughly the next 140 years, they did just that, with many such communities flourishing and growing throughout what makes up today northeastern England. Not to mention that they were also becoming increasingly integrated into English society, living rather peaceful existences, to the degree that even intermarrying with the Anglo-Saxons was becoming a more common occurrence. For some, their family had now been settled in England for several generations, in addition to all the reasons mentioned earlier, it was simply their home. 
towards the turn of the first millennium as these inhabitants continued to laboriously scratch out their livings, now entrenched as a part of the English landscape, what they could not have fathomed was that thousands of their lives were hanging in the balance. As a result of the misguided fury of the reigning English king, Ethelred the Unready, who decided to unleash a scourge upon these people on November 13, 1002. An ethnic cleansing genocide called the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. You might be asking at this point, if there were no more Viking rulers in England, and everything was largely peaceful with the remaining settlers, why would Ethelred order such a heinous act? In order to answer that, before we get down to that event of infamy and unpack how this came to be, I want to take this opportunity to backtrack in time a little bit, so we can tease out how everything reached such a boiling point of contention in England. In the top end of episode 8, we touched upon the beginnings of the Viking Age, which was kicked off in 793 with that fateful raid on a monastery in Lindisfarne, an island on the northeastern coast of England. Of course, England wasn't the only place seeing Viking activity between the 8th and 11th centuries. In fact, I have an interesting map on my website which provides a great snapshot showing the extent and timing of Scandinavian raiding and settlement over this period. Because they raided all over the coastlines and up the rivers of modern-day Eastern Europe and Russia, south to the Black and Caspian Seas, the northern coast of Central Europe, westwards towards France, along the Iberian Peninsula, even as far as North Africa and Southern Italy. And of course, the British Isles, with these lands bearing the brunt of Viking attention, invasions, and raiding. But there are some key distinctions as to why England was such a featured target for these Nordic raiders like Forkbeard. Okay, ready for a crash course on the background of Viking raids on England? To probably no one's surprise, at least initially, it was driven by the easy acquisition of wealth. With the news of many Viking successes in these pursuits spreading like wildfire. And Anglo Saxon England was extremely wealthy, swimming in high quality silver minted coinage, although interestingly, not rich in native silver mines itself, but largely acquired from mainland Europe, an insatiable appetite driven by a booming economy that was becoming increasingly urbanized with extensive internal and external trade networks. So that forms part of the rationale for Viking interest, but it went much deeper than that for a number of reasons. A big factor is proximity. Proximity to Scandinavia and ease of access by sea. A one-way trip taking somewhere in between three to six days, depending on the starting point and weather conditions. Although this still doesn't explain things fully, because there were a lot of other nations much closer to the Nordic countries. England's geography has a lot to do with this as well, more specifically, ease of access on a different scale. Unlike other countries that had one coastline to defend against such incursions, while still difficult to manage, being an island nation, England is of course almost entirely surrounded by coastlines, presenting the perfect conditions for the smash-and-grab Vikings to come in with complete surprise before a suitable response could be readied, thereby handing the marauding raiders with a vast array of options to unleash surprise attacks, 
while handing the defenders the almost impossible task of trying to defend against such. In the first half of the 9th century, it was primarily smaller fleets of Norse raiders that were coming in to pick off the wealth, until a much greater force was organized, when the great heathen army, also known as the Great Danish Army, invaded England in 865. Although the exact size of this Viking invasion is unknown, this army reportedly was made up of a huge collection of Scandinavian warriors, led by the sons of the legendary Danish and Swedish king Ragnar Lothbrok, including Halfdan Ragnarsson, Ivar the Boneless, Bjorn Ironside, and Uba, who were intent on conquering the whole of England, which at that time consisted of the four kingdoms of Northumbria, East Anglia, Mercia, and Wessex. In the ensuing campaign that would last approximately 14 years, this resulted in the Vikings conquering large portions of Northumbria, Mercia, and later including East Anglia as well, a vast swath of land which became known as the Danelaw in modern-day northeastern England, the lands in which the laws of the Danes ruled supreme, formalized and recognized through peace treaties to prevent further bloodshed and assert peaceful relations between the English and the Vikings. This kicked off another wave of Scandinavians appearing on English shores. But the look and feel of these arrivals had changed significantly, because now they were coming with their wives and children in tow. As mentioned a little earlier, the appeal of England broadened to that of its productive soils, meaning that getting access to rich, cultivatable lands was a key motive for many. In the midst of all of this, the Kingdom of Wessex in modern southern England had not only survived the devastation of the great heathen army, but then grew in power and thrived through military might, establishing themselves as the undisputed power in England, largely through powerful leaders such as Alfred the Great, who continued to oppose the Viking settlement and over time consolidated his power base to become king of Anglo-Saxon England in 886. Granted, the Vikings still ruled in the Danelaw. The following year saw the rest of England increasingly submit under Wessex, and continue to fight the Viking regional rulers. In 937, a key military victory for the English at the Battle of Brunanburh initiated the collapse of Norse power in Northern Britain, and is commonly regarded as the historical point of origin for English nationalism. By 954, Eric Bloodaxe, the last of the Scandinavian kings ruling Northumbria, was expelled from his seat of power, centered in the city of Jorvik, today known as York. Of note is that although Viking rule in these lands had been extinguished, the presence of Scandinavian settlers in the Danelaw would persist throughout this period and into our timeline as well. Remember when I mentioned a little earlier that it was almost impossible to prevent or slow the Viking raiding activity in England? The reason I put it that way is purposeful, because these Viking raids in England actually slowed significantly to almost drying up completely for a 30-year period between 954 to the early 980s, largely due to King Edgar the Peaceful, who ruled England from 959 to 975 during which he built on the achievements of his predecessors and made gains to further unite England politically. 
his reign being noted for its relative stability. In addition to that, his economic reforms also helped him to finance a naval force to deter the would-be raiders, which proved to be an excellent tactic. When Viking incursions were made, the fleet would be summoned to at least have a chance of engaging the raiders, versus just helplessly watching them sail off to attack somewhere else along the coast. In the years leading up to this point in time, England began demonstrating a more united front, and increasingly, the ability to not only fight back, but defeat the Nordic invaders that were in their lands, while also mauling those that were headed their way. Of course, this doesn't mean that the Vikings had given up their designs of conquering England just yet. In fact, far from it. As you may recall from episode 9, there was an ongoing sense of entitlement over portions of the land and the riches within, a notion that many Scandinavians had inherited from their predecessors. And in the hands of a powerful ruler with access to extensive military resources, like Spain Forkbeard, this idea of ownership would become much more credible and dangerous to the intended target from a national security perspective. Bringing us back to Forkbeard's lifetime, coinciding with his soon-to-be adversary, King Ethelred in England, who would later be granted the epithet the unready, derived from the Old English language meaning ill or poorly advised, which is actually a pun on his name, being that Ethelred means noble or well-counseled. Gotta love that dry English humor. If we think Forkbeard had some bad press, it pales in comparison to how historians have treated Ethelred's lifetime and actions, who has been vilified unrelentingly since his reign, largely as a result of his poor decision-making qualities, showing quite the knack for making bad situations worse, all the while being informed by a lackluster, greedy, and squabbling group of royal counsellors. And he had some serious bad luck as well. In the few instances that he ordered actions that could have yielded positive benefits, these endeavours ended up in utter disaster, in stark contrast to how things befell for Forkbeard, which denotes a key difference between these two leaders. Remember that piece of Viking knowledge that we talked about in the last episode from the saga of Olaf Haraldsson, the saying, luck accompanies wisdom? Whereas Forkbeard had previously made missteps and lost almost everything, he learned from these failures and developed a great deal of skill for identifying opportunities and cultivating them into distinct advantages. This long-term panoramic vision was certainly something lacking in his English adversary. But in truth, it wasn't all his fault. The prophetically dark indicators surrounding Aethelred began immediately upon assuming the heavy mantle of kingship at the tender age of 12 in 978. Upon the death of Edgar the Peaceful and his steady leadership, this is when things took a definitive turn for the worse. Dysfunction. This is probably the right word to characterize what would happen from there on in. Initially, Edgar was succeeded by his 13-year-old son Edward, who was murdered just three years later and then replaced by Æthelred, who was his half-brother. Edward's murder is believed to have been organized by Æthelred's power-hungry mother, Queen Dowager Althrith, who was intent on seeing her son being placed on the throne. Furthermore, no one was even punished for the crime, and for Æthelred, 
who was crowned a month after the murder, began to reign in an atmosphere of suspicion, which began destroying the prestige of the crown. Ethelred's early reign as a young and unproven ruler, surrounded by a scheming mother, squabbling and self-interested nobles and advisors, naturally fell into dysfunction and a weakening of the strength of the English monarchy and their united front. Which highlights a larger problem seen throughout history. As soon as a throne is left to a young child, they are often manipulated by self-interested people all around them. Not in all cases, but in many. And more often than not, landing the respective kingdom or empire in a hot mess. Like in this one creating the ideal environment for a new wave of Viking raiders that smelled blood in the water, spurring the resumption of wider-scale raiding on English shores from the early 980s onwards. So, you might be thinking, hold up, didn't you just mention that Ethelred's father, Edgar the Peaceful, didn't he previously build a fleet of ships to help deal with these types of incursions? And you would be right, he did. Over time, however, Through things like battles, storms, and neglect, the fleet was eventually whittled down to an ineffectual force. And the drying up of Nordic invaders to a mere trickle over the past 30 years meant no ongoing investment in this naval presence, which would ultimately prove to become a huge error. If the inability of the English to mount an effective ocean-based deterrent helped to reignite Viking interest in plundering their coastlines, the policy of paying out Dengeld to convince these invaders to leave was like pouring gasoline on the reignited flames, essentially driving the raiders to come back and make bolder attempts to ensure a hefty payout, which included the participation of bigger fleets like those under Svein Forkbeard in the early 990s, though Forkbeard for a long time had been eyeing England for much more than wealth extraction intent on conquering it in order to expand his kingdom and showcase his strength, as he had vowed during his coronation feast back in 986. However, as we extensively covered in episode 9, after having been forced off this path to reassert his power base back in Denmark, by late in the year 1000, with his victory over Olaf Tryggvason at the Battle of Svolder, he was finally firmly rooted as the dominant monarch in all of Scandinavia. And while his invasion of England was very likely an inevitable outcome, a more immediate instance would soon surface, marking Ethelred as his utmost enemy, fueling cries of retribution throughout Scandinavia and demanding an immediate response from the reigning Viking king. Bringing us to that tragic event that we touched upon at the very beginning of this episode. Ordered by King Ethelred, the St. Brice's Day Massacre, which was unleashed upon thousands of ancestral Scandinavians residing in England on November 13, 1002. The name referring to the feast day of St. Brice, a 5th century bishop of Tours, a city in modern-day central France. Ethelred had to have been feeling the heavy stress of renewed waves of invaders appearing on his shores and despoiling his lands. And his inability to prevent these raids must have been seriously undermining confidence in his rule, which was already poorly regarded to begin with. His subjects were looking to him to provide a firm response, strong, decisive actions from a true leader, 
otherwise risk being cursed as a coward. To the grinding mental health burden associated with this were his royal counselors, whispering in his ear that the Danes living in England were beginning to rise up against him, pushing Ethelred over the edge. In reality, while there were likely more than a few that longed for the return of the Danelaw, most were becoming increasingly integrated into the landscape, content to work on their farms while growing and feeding their families. In his manipulated fury, King Ethelred ordered the execution of all Danes living in England. Historical accounts speak of a large, coordinated effort, with the king sending communications to his regional eldermen, who were essentially the highest of nobility in England, just below the king and the executors of his commands in these territories. He then contacted the eldermen that had Norse communities within their areas of responsibility, calling for ethnic cleansing through merciless slaughter. Of course, it was indeed a horrific act, one that would add another stain onto his record. But in his mind, and that of his advisors, no more horrific than the atrocities that had been committed on his people by the Viking raiders. A royal charter issued out in 1004 voices this notion perfectly, stating, For it is fully agreed that to all dwelling in this country it will be well known that, since a decree was sent out by me with the counsel of my leading men, to the effect that all the Danes who sprung up in this island sprouting like weeds amongst the wheat, were to be destroyed by a most just extermination. While the majority of historians tend to agree that there was a significant loss of life, likely well into the thousands, evidence is lacking on any specific estimates, although some mass graves have been since found that connect with this timing. Another piece of the puzzle are the locations where the massacres were carried out as the prevailing assertion is that most of this was conducted in the more isolated communities near the outskirts of the now-defunct Danelaw, areas like modern-day Oxford, England. Being that the Scandinavian population was not wiped out. In fact, far from it, there were thousands that were spared this abhorrent attack, not coming from any feelings of pity, regret, or wrongdoing or anything like that, the scale and logistics of doing this fully and marching the necessary forces into cities like York, so heavily concentrated with those of Nordic descent, would have effectively been too much. Aethelred would have needed to raise a vast army to do this effectively. Though certainly not out of the realm of possibility for Aethelred and his advisors, who may have very well been planning the continuation of this genocide on a larger scale. Among the thousands of dead laying strewn about after this cold-blooded carnage was a woman named Gunhild, who was in fact sister to the Danish king Svein Forkbeard. If not clear by now, you're correct in assuming that a firestorm was about to be set off that Gunhild herself was about to foretell. The 12th century English historian William of Malmesbury lays this out quite powerfully, setting the scene just as Gunhild was about to meet her end. She declared plainly that the shedding of her blood would cost all of England dearly, and for her part, she faced death with the presence of mind, never grew pale at the prospect, nor did she change expression after death, 
even when her body was drained of blood, though her husband had been killed before her eyes and her son, a very child, pierced by four lances. Worse for Ethelred than disparaging his rule, this invoked the wrath of Forkbeard, who had been set off in a furious rage when he learned of this, and immediately began making preparations for a devastating response, rallying warriors to his banner, who came in droves. Added to the prospect of riches to be gained, and the want to conquer the English realm, was now a moral justification. Not only for Forkbeard, but from all those killed who had relatives in Scandinavia, feeling that it was their duty to take revenge. The St. Bryce's Day Massacre was to become a rallying cry, fueling their response. Which was not long in coming. Only five short months following the massacre, in the spring of 1003, Forkbeard, at the head of a large army and fleet, arrived unexpectedly in southwestern England. Unfortunately, the historical accounts don't include any ship or troop counts associated with those accompanying him. However, given Forkbeard's much-enhanced military strength and power versus his previous raids, I would estimate that a fleet of 100 ships holding 6,000 troops would have been quite reasonable, given the vast resources that he had at hand now. Making landfall near the city of Exeter in southwestern England, unleashing his warriors in a frenzied state, who then plundered and ravaged it voraciously, setting a cataclysmic tone of what was about to unfold over the next two years. Crushing town after town, burning them to the ground, destroying anyone who stood in their way, and then displaying grisly signs of his passing, including leaving opposing forces or garrisons on spikes for all to view. Barbarity and cruelty were hallmarks of Forkbeard's raids, as they had been in the early 990s, but now fueled by the massacre of his people. This desire for revenge took his harshness to an entirely new level, but he was also able to showcase his leadership and military acumen, as usual leading from the front with ferocity, interspersed with a penchant for surprises and cunning maneuvers. Following the assault on Exeter, Forkbeard then led his army back to their ships and then eastwards towards the town of Wilton, just to the northwest of the modern-day city of Southampton, where he had likely landed his fleet. In the meanwhile, the English had managed to mobilize a defending army, led by Elderman Alfric, and in a rare instance was able to catch up with the Danish invaders before they were able to sack the town. Now, getting bogged down in pitched battles was not something that Forkbeard wanted, because this wasn't yet an invasion of England, it was still a raiding force. Committing to such battles would have had dire implications, thinning his strength and inhibiting their ability to plunder bigger towns and cities. So faced with the prospect of a clash with the English defenders, he decided to try his hand at some theatrics. As the two armies stood at the wings facing each other, Alfric and Forkbeard met to see if they could reach some sort of agreement, wherein Forkbeard began retching and vomiting uncontrollably, with those around him looking on worried, stating that a sickness was consuming him. As such, they would soon be leaving these lands, so really no point in fighting. Apparently, 
Forkbeard was a rather convincing actor, because the English army then moved back, unwilling to fight if there was no need. Which was probably more so a rationalization of their fears, understanding the potential severe loss of life that would result from a battle with these bloodthirsty Nordic warriors. As soon as Forkbeard realized that his ruse had worked, he swiftly led his army into Wilton, plundered and burned the town, and then hauled off his stolen riches back to the sea where his ships were waiting. Into the following year, in 1004, Forkbeard then led his fleet to eastern England, sacking and ravaging the city of Norwich, so extensively that this prompted King Ethelred to sue for a truce and buy off their ongoing wrath before they had the opportunity to cause even more debilitating damage. Under the pretense of this truce allowing for negotiations to occur, the English were apparently dragging their heels a little bit on this, not progressing fast enough for Forkbeard, who, instead of staying put, marched his army further inland towards the town of Thetford, about 50 kilometers to the southwest of Norwich, plunder and fire following in his wake. Although this was rather risky, I would add in, because this took him further and further away from his ships than he was accustomed to. The regional English commander, Elderman Ulf Seitel, recognized this as well, because the Danish king had indeed pushed too far inland. As Forkbeard began leading his troops back towards the awaiting ships, Ulf Seitel had managed to pull together a mass of the troops at his disposal, and took this opportunity to place them right in Forkbeard's path. This time, though, no acting, however skilled, was going to stave off the impending encounter, called the Battle of Thetford. And I tend to side with the notion that the English outnumbered Forkbeard's soldier count, being that Ulf Seitel was intent on making Forkbeard pay for the harm that he had caused over the past almost two years. And he had to have brought with him an army formidable enough to force Forkbeard to pause and engage. Not to mention that Ulf Seitel would have been aware of the strength of the raiders. On home soil, and with a great deal of time to raise a large enough force in this time of need. Now, in terms of battle tactics, the Vikings were notorious for lacking organized formations, making up for this with ferociousness in hand-to-hand combat. But Forkbeard was a different type of Viking commander. As a skilled and able warrior in his own right, he led from the front, sharing in the danger with those around him, through which he commanded the steadfast devotion and admiration of his warriors. Although quite liberal and willing to unleash his warriors when doing something like sacking a town, what was more uncommon was that he could also be extremely demanding of a disciplined and tactical approach when the occasion called for it. And the occasion was loudly calling for it now, outnumbered and with no easy way to escape back to his awaiting ships. Forkbeard clearly understood that the only way to salvage this situation was to go through the defenders. Certainly no easy task, fighting motivated English soldiers acting in the defense of their homeland. As the two armies lined up across the field from one another, the troops on both sides unleashed a thunderous wave of war cries oaths to gods mixed in with insults directed at their adversaries. However, instead of allowing his warriors to recklessly charge out as per the Viking custom, Forkbeard took a more measured approach, 
understanding the importance of maintaining discipline against enemies that we're used to and deadly effective at fighting in a cohesive manner. Unfortunately, we don't have a detailed account of how this battle transpired. However, a noted Viking formation used when faced in these types of battles that Forkbeard may have employed here was shields up, moving forward in a wedge formation, with the best fighters at the front to shock and dismay their opponents. Spears and arrows would have been thrown overhead, followed by a quick rush forward to get into hand-to-hand -hand combat, where the Vikings excelled. Axes, spears, and swords smashing into the English shield wall ahead, who were also launching arrows and javelins into Forkbeard's ranks. Despite the vicious initial charge delivered by the raiders, to their credit the English army held and then countered. And according to Anglo-Saxon battle tactics, also likely strategically falling back from time to time in order to break the melee and pepper the Vikings with missile weapons. Several hours into this brutal battle, the lines devolved into a disorganized and messy brawl, exhaustion leading towards a stalemate, revealing staggering losses on both sides with seemingly no appetite from either side to continue. In the end, no clear winner emerged from this encounter, but most importantly for Forkbeard, the disengagement allowed him to gather his remaining troops, stolen riches, and make his way back to his ships. His army was in no condition to continue with their raids, otherwise they would have risked utter ruin. This coupled with the fact that a famine was starting to take hold in England, no doubt exacerbated by the chaos that Forkbeard had brought to their lands, forced him to return to Denmark in 1005, leaving southern and eastern England in a trampled mess. In addition to the loads of pilfered riches that his longships carried back to Denmark and retribution paid for the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, I'm convinced that Forkbeard took with him something of far more value that in time would yield a much greater prize. Knowledge. First-hand learnings about the weakened situation in England and the sentiment surrounding its beleaguered king, sensing its ripeness for conquest. Through this time, and even in the years prior, he would have undoubtedly been getting regular second-hand reports and news from informants. But Forkbeard would have learned a great deal more about England during his recent adventures there, intelligence that he would put to use, formulating and flushing out his strategy to conquer the island nation. Given what we now know of Forkbeard, yes, he could be brutish and cruel, but certainly not a short-sighted visionary. He learned from his experiences as he went, developing a keen sense for recognizing favorable opportunities and exploiting them to the fullest degree, bending them to his will, planning as one would do in a game of chess over a long horizon. By this time, he must have realized that trying to conquer England in one foul swoop, one invasion would have been costly, likely beyond his resources at hand. The wiser approach was to chew at the edges, taking smaller bites, versus trying to swallow it whole and risk choking in the process. Draining their resources, economically, militarily, breaking regional resistance, and severing the already tenuous link to their king. In short, harassing them relentlessly over a long time frame, thereby whittling away at morale 
and destroying their ability to fight off an invasion. In the next and final episode covering Svein Forkbeard, we'll follow along as he begins to execute against this masterful strategy, wasting hardly any time in doing so and showing up in England once again in 1006, cutting a new path of devastation and destruction, including a key pitched battle against the defenders, forcing another massive payment of Dangeld. Ethelred, seeing his grasp on power begin to escape through his fingers, takes on one final chance to salvage his hold on the crown, a rather impressive national undertaking at a huge expense to his subjects, that could have in fact turned the tide in his favor, but that ultimately helps to accelerate what Forkbeard was already working towards, that being heavily draining the English ability to put up a viable resistance exhausting their military and financial resources as a precursor to a full-scale invasion in 1013, becoming the first Viking king of England. In the short term, establishing a legacy that was built upon by his offspring, particularly another future English king, Canute the Great, with longer-term overtones that remain relevant today. This and more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can tell your family and friends about the show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And lastly, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional info like images and maps pertaining to what we covered here today. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from audionautics.com